Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, I'm Nicole Giantonio, the producer of the Elevate Together podcast. The impact episode you're about to hear features Arash Tarudi, Fender's general counsel and executive vice president. Our host for our podcast is Elevate's COO and general counsel, Steve Harmon. Arash and Steve discuss implementing change, specifically the need to insist and engage to ensure inclusion and diversity within law. The conversation continues with a discussion on legal professionals as business leaders and the recent appointment of legal leaders to executive business roles. The most compelling points in this podcast revolve around Arash's personal story and its impact on his career. Before we jump into our formal session, Arash, can you share with our listeners a few comments on your journey, how you got to where you are today? Absolutely, Nicole. It comes down to serendipity. I would say one word probably describes my life and my trajectory. I was born in Texas, but then through certain political events that occurred back in Iran, as far as a revolution, I was actually separated from my parents for seven years and found my way back to the United States to ultimately settle in the East Coast, graduate from University of Maryland with an accounting degree, came out with a law degree and an LLM in tax. And the idea was to become a tax attorney. But this was 06 and the economy was not in the best state, if you will. And I ended up working for an insurance company as a tax attorney. And I just wanted something much more entrepreneurial, anything entrepreneurial. And one day I ran into a gentleman who worked with a private equity firm that was involved in ad tech companies. And they had 13 ad tech companies that they had just created, invested and grown. And they were looking for a general counsel. And I said, who do I interview with? I'm ready. So I interviewed with them. I got the position. I was there for several years and saw sort of the trajectory of their growth. And I was working on an acquisition in Scottsdale, Arizona of a company when a recruiter at Fender reached out to me on LinkedIn, completely out of the blue, unexpected, said, we see that you're here in Scottsdale. We love the fact that you're a lawyer and you have a tech background. Would you be interested in an associate general counsel position? I first thought it was a scam. I didn't think that Fender would be based in Scottsdale. Why would Fender be based in Scottsdale? You would imagine Nashville, Los Angeles, New York. But I did some research and found out, nope, it is based in Scottsdale. Interviewed and I got the position. And eight years later, I'm the general counsel. Arash, that's fantastic. Serendipity is a great way to describe it. Your role moving from accounting into a general counsel role. I started out thinking I was going to be an electrical engineer and I wasn't very good at it. But I did quickly determine that I was better at helping entrepreneurs commercialize their engineering inventions than I was at becoming an engineer myself. If anything, I hope that gives some confidence and some optimism to people that are early in their career that the path doesn't always have to be linear and that maintaining those relationships on LinkedIn and other professional collaboration sites can actually pay off. Most definitely, Steve. I would say that the beauty of, of the legal profession is when you have a law degree, it is quite flexible. So my recommendation always to folks who are coming up in their careers is remain flexible. And you're 100% right. Utilize the power of LinkedIn. Terrific lead into our topic for our podcast, Implementing Change. And of course, you've experienced change in your career. And I know you have implemented change within Fender as Associate General Counsel and now General Counsel. Arash, could you tell us one or two stories about areas where you implemented change within the legal department of Fender? Happy to do so, Nicole. I always thought 
that myself being an immigrant and being the child of immigrants, having an unusual name that's not conventional, I always thought that this was a perceived weakness of mine. For the longest time, actually, I went by the name Alex, primarily because I thought I had to reduce the potential friction that exists in order to get assimilated into the legal world, which primarily is folks from my background are quite in the minority. But it was only at the time that I realized that, no, I'm going to, in essence, accept myself for who I am. My name is Arash. That's how I came into this world. And I would honor my parents by going back to my roots. It was only when I accepted myself for who I am that I actually put myself on the path of becoming general counsel. And the way that that actually occurred was there was a legal issue that we had in Mexico. And it involved the fact that we have a massive manufacturing facility in Mexico and we had millions and upon millions of dollars of goods stuck at the border trying to come into the United States. At the time, the general counsel worked with some of the biggest law firms out there that are based in Mexico, couldn't resolve the situation and just couldn't be resolved. Meeting after meeting, no resolution. The board was getting upset. The C-suite obviously was very upset until finally I spoke up and I said, let me go down to Mexico and let me see what I can actually do. And everybody looked at me as if I was out of my mind. Like, what do you mean? If the biggest of the biggest firms can't resolve this, how are you going to go down there and resolve it? Well, the reason why I was able to resolve it was I tapped into my background, my history, the fact that I lived in 19 different countries by the time that I was 10 years old. And I had gone to almost every major embassy of every major country you can imagine to find my way back to the United States when I was separated from my parents. And I tapped into that same ability, went down to Mexico, met with government officials. When we went in, essentially, we didn't even start talking about business. I talked about Mexican culture, Mexican history. I talked about the Mesoamerican culture from Aztec, Mayan, Tenochtitlan, etc., and completely really lowered their defenses that would allow us to have a constructive conversation. Within a period of an hour and a half, I called the CEO and I said, the problem is resolved. The trucks are going to roll over the border in two days. I share that story because I realized in that moment in time that my perceived weaknesses were actually my greatest strengths. And I never truly thought that that was the case. It was always there. It was always in me and within me, but I always hid it away. So when I became general counsel, I said, I have to tap into that knowledge to change the demographics and representation of our legal department. I was the first one in Fender's history to hire the first female attorney, the first African-American attorney, first Asian-American attorney, Latina, veteran, disabled, LGBTQ. And when I did that, in essence, what we found was that when you have diversity within your legal department, it's that diversity of experiences, knowledge, and know-how. The things that I overcame in my life may not have that moment been you know, welcomed, but nonetheless, it makes you stronger. Unfortunately, challenges and obstacles are what make you stronger. So that's how we effectuate a change on the inside. Then I said, let's take a look at outside counsel. We work with over 600 lawyers across the world. We sell from Tokyo, Japan to Santiago, Chile. I found that the vast majority of outside counsel was male, not just white male. It was male across the board. I said, no, I can't accept that. My team is actually majority female. We went to outside counsel. It's 50% female representation now across the world. That is a conscious effort that we did. One of the things I've always been curious about is the way various general counsel approach change. There's people that are incrementalists. They like to make small changes and build on those changes over time. And then there's the 
other end of the spectrum, which is the revolutionary, the person that dives in, makes it change in one fell swoop, and then picks up the pieces as they go a little bit. I think that when you take a look at the legal industry and the legal business as a whole, it is very traditional in its mindset. It is very resistant and hesitant to change. The only way that you can actually make change, in my opinion, is by complete and shock and awe theory. So in essence, what I did was I went to outside counsel and I said, this is what I would like to see. I know from your website, there are females within different practice areas. There is diverse lawyers within practice areas, but they're never actually presented on the Zoom calls that we get on. One of the things that I did notice, you would have female lawyers and diverse lawyers get on calls with us regarding various legal topics and legal subjects. And there would also be at all times, white male partner that would be present. The white male partner would do all of the speaking and the female or the diverse lawyer wouldn't say anything. They would simply be on the call, nod their head, never ask any questions. And this wasn't with one firm. This was with the firm after firm. And being the type of person that I am, I said, I have to look into this. I have to see what this story is all about. So I reached out to one of the associates and I asked her, I said, could I have 20 minutes of your time? And she turned to me and said, no worries. Let me get the partner on the line as well. I said, no, no, no. I just want to talk with you. She's okay. We got on a Zoom and I asked her, I said, you're a mid-level associate. You have six plus years of experience. You've graduated from incredible educational institutions and such. Why did you get on the line and not say anything? Why did you not ask any questions? She sort of skirted the subject until we finally peeled away the layers and we realized, no, it's sort of understood that the male partner does the talking and the thinking and asking the questions. And the female or the diverse lawyer is there for some reason that is called learning. I said, no, that's unacceptable. So I started mentoring her. I said, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to teach you the inside skills and strategies to be successful with in-house counsel, the business intelligence and business acumen, which is the number one thing in my opinion that differentiates outside counsel with in-house counsel is exactly that business intelligence and business acumen. She would go try the tips and tricks. She would come back and say, that was fantastic. Give me more. What else do you have? I would give her some more. Then she came back with a friend, another lawyer, and she brought another lawyer and another lawyer until finally this thing actually became a full-blown course. So that's another way that I disrupt. I specifically teach females and diverse lawyers, business intelligence and business acumen at law firms so that they can be successful. Because ultimately, if they don't build a book of business, they leave the firms and we're back to where we started. Yeah, Suresh, what we hear is when you go through these panel reviews and you ask the law firms to talk about their diverse lawyers and they present a number, this is exactly what occurs. They present a number and that person gets put on the team, but they're not actively working on the team or they're not put in a leadership role. Very similar to technology. You're asking your law firms to talk about the technology that they use to be efficient in the way that they're practicing and they present technology. And then you find out in the long run that they're not using that technology. I mean, have you had this experience going back and saying, hold on, we asked this question. You said we had a diverse team that would be assigned to us. What is happening? Absolutely. I think we as in-house counsel play a very critical role in ensuring that there are fundamental positive changes that are made to not only the profession itself, but the general community and society as a whole. Ultimately, we write the checks. We are the client. We are the customer. So we have that power to be able to influence. That involves dialogue. That involves very direct dialogue as far as what your expectations are, number one. 
What do you want to see happen? And how are you going to measure that? One of the things that interested me that you referred to was kind of the key differentiator between in-house counsel and outside counsel, and that being a greater expectation around business acumen. That led me to think about the approaches that various GCs take to deciding what work requires that business acumen, what work is best served by an in-house legal department versus the decisions you make around the work that you decide to take externally and when you need to involve outside counsel. And whether that's a strategic decision or happens out of happenstance is is one of the things that has always intrigued me. And so I'm wondering if you have a particular model, Arash, that you use to evaluate this is a, a question that we should be handling ourselves. This is an area where we want to invest in professional development of our own in-house legal team versus the things that you immediately think, you know, that's probably either best done by a law firm or a law company or some other outside resource. Do you have a model that you use to assess those things? Most definitely, Steve. So I call it the hub and spoke strategy. In essence, I feel that people are much more capable of handling different areas of the law that they traditionally would think that they can handle. In essence, when you look at legal departments as a whole, you have a lot of silos. An individual handles employment law, another individual handles data privacy, and that's basically it. There's not much of excursion beyond the means of that area of the law for them. I don't believe in that. I believe that for professional development, number one, for the growth of your legal department, for the personal development of individuals, you want to be able to allow them to explore new areas. What happens when you do that is you take, for example, a lawyer that I brought in as an employment lawyer. I said after about three months, four months that they got a foothold within the organization, I said, is there any other areas of the law that intrigue you, that interest you, that you'd like to learn more about? They said, I'd love to get involved more on the commercial side of things. No problem. Absolutely. So by doing development and sort of shadowing, they started to get involved on the commercial side. A year and a half later, they're doing a tremendous job on the commercial side, not only on the employment side and commercial, but now they're getting involved in international transactions. Now they're getting involved in some corporate governance. So basically what you did was you took that same lawyer that could have spent the rest of their either long tenure or short tenure at our organization, expanded their capabilities. The value that they provide to the organization now is far greater than it would have been. And guess what? They're happier. Even if they decided to move on to other organizations, now they're even more marketable. That's as far as step one. Step two is how do we make a decision as to what can we handle internally versus externally? Outside counsel, in my vision, are weapons of choice. Essentially, you have to make a decision from an inside perspective. What sort of artillery am I going to take into this specific issue? If it's some sort of issue that we can handle internally, that we have the know-how, we have the experience of something that we dealt with before, absolutely, 100%, we handle it. But sometimes, even if we have the know-how internally, it's good to utilize outside counsel because it sends a message to the opposing side. This is really that business intelligence that comes in as in-house counsel where you don't send everything outside and you don't do everything in-house. It's this delicate balance that you actually achieve. In the end, you're resolving legal issues. Yeah, that's a great observation. I like your your hub and spoke metaphor for that. And it reminds me of early in my legal career, I think the view of in-house counsel was, 
oh, they're just generalists, right? They're not really good at any one particular thing. They're just kind of okay at a few things. And when the real serious legal work needs to happen, you know, that's when you go out to outside counsel and get a deep subject matter expert. My view evolved a lot over time. I should be transparent. I've never worked in a law firm. I've never billed an hour. The culture I grew up in the legal environment was the role of the legal department is to enable the business. It's to help the business find a way to design, build, and sell its products in a legally appropriate way. And that sometimes requires a deep subject matter expert. You know, I thought about your reference to having products stuck at the border, trying to make that border crossing from Mexico. And you may need an export specialist. And oftentimes having an outside counsel lawyer that's deeply steep in the vagaries of what it takes to move things from Mexico to the United States or from Singapore to the United States, there's deep subject matter expertise that's required there. But I think your observations resonate with me that in-house counsel really add a lot more value by understanding the bigger picture, understanding the specific business problems that our respective organizations are most likely to face. In your world, knowing that you do manufacturing outside the U.S. and a lot of those goods come back across the border. I'm assuming you probably need to have some narrowly tailored expertise there, but it may not go deep into that law firm centric, very narrowly tailored subject matter expertise that is traditionally focused. You may have heard of this notion of T-shaped lawyers, right? The subject matter expertise on the vertical axis and then the breadth of experience on the horizontal axis. Does that resonate with you? Is that something that you affirmatively look to with your teams? I mean, you mentioned that you allow people to self-identify other areas that are complementary to what they're doing that they might like to pursue. But do you prescribe training activities to make sure that people get that breadth? Fundamentally, I agree in a much more diverse experience set. In organizations, when you have an organization such as Fender, this is a very large organization. It's a very complex organization. We're as much a manufacturing company as we are a digital company. We have operations domestically, internationally. You're talking about a lot of areas of the law that are coming into play on a single legal matter. You're talking employment law, import-export. You're talking intellectual property. Within intellectual property, there's trademarks and patents. There's so many different types of implications. An individual typically gravitates toward one or two main areas of the law that is their comfort zone. It's theirs, but they also do delve and are involved in other areas of the law that they traditionally wouldn't have thought that they would be involved in. That is purposeful. The reason why you do that is because it gives you a much more holistic view to identifying legal issues and identifying problems. In the end, I would say this. One of the most important things that in-house counsel, successful in-house counsel should do and does is connect to humanity, the human connection. Because in essence, behind every product, behind every M&A deal, behind any commercial transaction, whatever it may be, is a human being. Simply, if you connect to human beings, that's step one. Step two is developing relationships with those human beings. And step three is creating this channel of comfortable communication where they can work with you to resolve problems, whatever that is. And you make a determination. Is this something we're going to handle internally or do we utilize outside counsel for it? The biggest challenge that I've always had with hiring lawyers from outside law firms to the in-house environment was exactly that, was the inability to connect to the humans. I always say from the mailroom to the boardroom, you have to connect with the humans. Our entire legal department is required to attend the weekly business unit meetings of the organization across the world. There's always legal representation there. In the beginning, 
they're apprehensive because they say the lawyers are in the room. Why are the lawyers in the room? But after a while, after you attend a few weeks and leading up to a couple of months, they actually welcome you as a member of their team. That's connecting to humanity and you get embedded within the fabric of the organization. I totally agree, Arashit. I've always felt like the highest form of compliment that a business person could pay to the lawyer is to say, I want you here to talk about the business issues. It's not just the lawyers are going to be there to make sure that no one runs with the proverbial scissors and trips and falls and might hurt themselves in highly improbable way. The most successful in-house lawyers I've ever dealt with were right there shoulder to shoulder with their business partners talking about the implications of legal questions, but how they enable the business, as I described earlier. I 100% agree. Before we move on to another topic, it would be very helpful if there is a story or an experience where the diversity of thought came into play. You've now educated these people to be better business people, your team members, your legal professionals. Is there an example where that diversity of thought had impact within your organization? Most definitely, Nicole. Individuals that come from diverse backgrounds bring with them a different set of experiences valuable to the organization in a way that they can resolve issues and problems by tapping into those diverse experiences. The primary example, like I shared with you, when I went to Mexico, I went alone. I didn't have counsel with me. I didn't have an appointment with the government offices in Mexico. I simply went and I showed up. Now, the reason I was able to do that, which was quite shocking to all of my peers at the time, that was completely normal for me. The way that I grew up, the way that we traveled the world and we went embassy to embassy trying to find our way back to the United States, those skill sets were developed as a young child leading up to the time that I was eight years old. It's a prime example that a significant legal issue for an organization with a multi-million dollar financial implications That was resolved because I simply tapped into my diverse set of experiences. With the current legal team that we have, I encourage number one for everybody to accept themselves for who they are, because that's step one. Step two is go back and take a look at the things that you've overcome, the challenges and the obstacles, and figure out how did you overcome those? What did you learn from that? And how can you apply that in your work for the organization today? It's a regular exercise we go through. And fundamentally, What happens is you have happier people within the department that feel respected for whatever background that they have and wherever they come from. And the organization as a whole benefits. Terrific. Thank you. If there is another example of implementing change, you know, really something where you feel you've had a major impact on your organization through the work done in your law department. I got a call from our leadership a while ago, basically saying, Arash, congratulations. And I said, well, Thank you very much. What are you congratulating me for? I said, well, we're appointing you the president of the Fender Play Foundation. My response was, thank you. That's amazing. But why me? Why did you select me? Their response was essentially, we love the fact that you've taken departments and business units and staffed it with the right people, implemented processes and procedures and sort of operated in a way that's very conducive to a productive, healthy environment. We'd like you to do the same with the foundation. I found that quite fascinating that of all of the different business units throughout this entire organization, they came to the legal department to do that, which is for me a very important indicator that the business intelligence, business acumen, it actually does work and it resonates with the business. That was number one. Number two, our foundation is a 501c3. We have to date provided 18,000 instruments to kids in the Los Angeles Unified School District. 
by the end of this year, we will be upwards of 24,000 students who would receive instruments from us in addition to music instruction and such. I think that when you take a look at effectuating positive change, equitable distribution, it was something that was important to me. Music was one of the outlets, was one of the most important things as a child growing up, whether it was overseas or here in the United States. And the fact that there would be kids that wouldn't have access to that. It's just something that would be unacceptable to me. I started to build a team together of like-minded individuals that come from very diverse backgrounds, particularly of socioeconomic levels. There, you can effectuate a lot of change because these people are understanding the plight and they understand the difficulty of growing up in environments where you don't have access to these things. But we're shaping the future. There is this topic of the general counsel that becomes the business leader. You're seeing it more. You saw it as we came out of COVID. There were some very specific announcements around general counsel becoming CEOs of organizations. As the general counsel is sitting at the table in the boardroom, influencing decisions, I think we're going to see more of that. Steve, your whole background is as a business person. I'm both the general counsel and the COO. I think the confluence of legal expertise Integrating that with business acumen and business expertise is certainly becoming more and more common. 20 years ago, I think it would be highly unlikely to see a general counsel taking on primarily a business role, but we've got examples with Brad Smith at Microsoft and other examples of lawyers that truly viewed the business contribution of the legal department as integral to the contribution they brought to the business. And that evolving to a recognition by the board that, well, wait a minute, maybe some of our best business people don't have to come from the CFO's line or even the engineering line. Wait a minute, here's an untapped resource in the legal department. I agree with you, Steve. I think that in-house counsel have a secret weapon or perhaps maybe they're positive victim of circumstance. The in-house role touches almost every single business unit of an organization across the world. I think that's quite unique. There's not many other departments within an organization that have that sort of direct contact. Example, the marketing department would interface primarily with the product organization and a bit with the financial organization. But the marketing department really doesn't interface with the manufacturing organization or on the import-export organization. When you look at the in-house role, we touch manufacturing on a molecular level. We have to understand the glue that goes in the cabinet boards to make the speakers. We have to understand the paint that, that goes on the product for Proposition 65. But we also work with the digital team on the data privacy side. We work with the marketing team on the Federal Trade Commission side. Import-export, there's those regulations, HR from an employment perspective, uh, financial disclosures, SEC audit, in-house counsel, I'm not sure they're aware of this or not, but they are very well positioned to be able to take on much bigger business leadership roles just because of the fact that they've been so much exposed and sort of connected to different units within organizations. I agree completely, Arash. It makes me think back to the earlier question I asked you about the methodology you use to ascertain what work you're going to do in-house versus what you're going to take to outside counsel. At the same time, you've got these internal demands, right? As the organization evolves the way you're describing, I envision a scenario where the business teams are saying, not only do I welcome the lawyers into my weekly strategy session for my business unit or my function, but now they're saying, I want the lawyers to contribute in ways that are beyond just that weekly participation. I want the lawyers to be even more tightly integrated into the business. And while I would view that as flattering as a lawyer, I would view it as potentially challenging as a legal executive, as a general counsel, 
to make sure that my teams are focused on the areas where they provide the most value, right? Because mm-hmm. lawyers are an expensive resource. They're If they're viewed as a common good that can be accessed by anyone in the organization, you run the risk that you're overpaying for that type of utilization. And so I'm wondering if you have any experience with that happening, an oversubscription on the demand for the legal department's resources? And if that happened, how you balance that out? How do you make sure that you don't over-rotate on the idea that we as a legal department are here to help enable the business and we're available to the business? How do you make sure that you don't find yourself in a situation where lawyers are performing work that really ought to be performed by somebody else? Absolutely. So I think that starts within the legal department itself. So as general counsel, It's important to me to set a philosophy of service. We discuss this. We have regular discussions internally as far as what does a business need? What do they expect from us? And how do we best serve them? What we've found within our organization, and I would probably say based on my conversations with my other general counsel colleagues, it's similar in the organizations they work with in as well, is that we are here to utilize our unique set of knowledge as it relates to the law. We interpret the law and we help and advise on the law. Going back to the other point that we were talking about with respect to lawyers getting more and more involved in the business side of things, there is something within our training as lawyers that becomes very, very helpful to the business and quite valuable. That is a strategic problem solving. Our folks are required to basically advise on the law. Let's say there's a legal issue. We say the law states this and under the law, if you do this, this is the penalty. Typically, counsel would stop there and everybody goes back into the office. The rest of it, they would say it's a business decision. We actually require our in-house folks to go one step further and say, look, this is the law. This is the penalty. But if I were to put my business hat on, this is one of the things that I would suggest you consider. Or have you considered maybe trying this? Or strategically, let me game play the scenario for you in three different ways and you guys can decide. That's something that we're trained in as lawyers, and we shouldn't be shy about utilizing that. I think the business, at least our organization, knows how much of our services to utilize. It's never an overutilization. And there is definitely a level which you get to where you understand each other. You understand the different units and you adapt to the different business units. That's the other really important concept that I have to sort of mention. You cannot, as in-house counsel, engage with the digital department the same way that you do with the R&D department. That is fundamentally flawed. You have to connect to humans. You're talking about completely different individuals that share common traits. I tell my legal department, don't expect others to adapt to the way that we are. To be successful as in-house counsel, let's adapt to the way that they are, which in the end makes us very effective. Yeah, that resonates very strongly. I think as lawyers, we spend a lot of time talking about whether or not there is a loss, whether there is a potential for something to go sideways. We draw the line at violations of the law, but that's only begins to describe the risks that business leaders have to address. And so I've always encouraged lawyers that I work with and lawyers that I've trained to focus on not only is there a potential risk and the next step of what's the probability of that loss occurring, because that product ties into your burden to act to mitigate. And I think far too often we find ourselves in situations where as lawyers, we say, well, wait a minute, there's a possibility that something bad could happen. And we don't focus at all on, well, how probable is that? And what's the magnitude of of the loss if it occurs? I've made observations before that I think as first-year law students, we're all required to take a contracts course, but 
remedies isn't a required course in any law school that I'm aware of. Early in my career, I can remember saying, oh, well, if the other side does this, we're in breach of our contract and not asking the second level question of, well, what's the remedy? I mean, if the remedy for the breach is immaterial, then maybe we ought to just have a conversation and and not get so worried about the fact that we have a technical breach, but has no meaningful remedy. 100% agree. And I think that sort of mindset, Steve, has to be utilized on a daily basis on almost every sort of legal dispute or issue that comes up. You know, the vast majority of counsel that I've spoken to, they shy away from taking a position on things that may be a bit risky. I think that's not what the role of in-house counsel is supposed to be. In our role, we have to be a business facilitator. We have to move the business forward, albeit protect the business at the same time. If I simply sit back and take the most conservative approach on things without taking into consideration perhaps what the ultimate end result of this may be, what sort of risk is involved, the business is not going to move forward, number one. The view of the legal department as a whole will definitely be diminished. And third of all, the number of lawyer jokes are going to go off the charts. Which is one of the ways that I would probably say the success of the in-house legal department is how many lawyer jokes are actually being told in the meetings. And I can tell you, Alice has been on a downward trajectory for quite some time, which is a good thing. That is a great place to end. Arash, thank you for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Steve, of course, thank you for your engagement. Is there anything else either of you would like to share before we say goodbye? Just thank Arash for participating. This was great. I enjoyed it. Tune into the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and ElevateServices.com.